Now, if you are rich here, uh, the first six verses of James chapter 5 would probably freak you out. And you're probably divesting yourself of any riches you have after reading those six verses. Until you realize those verses doctrine do not apply to anybody here, any, anybody on earth right now. Those apply to the tribulation time. And specifically because those rich people are going with the, the program of the Antichrist and therefore oppressing the poor that are not. And God's condemned them as a result. Uh, but the spiritual application, as we talked about last time, uh, anybody who makes more of this life than they should, anybody who makes more of this life than they do of eternity is condemned as well. Now, not necessarily condemned to hell, uh, but even a believer who does that is condemned in the sense that they're not doing what God has called them to do. So I want to be very clear about this again. Taking care of yourself in this life is not a sin. Uh, if you're taking care of your future in whatever way, providing for yourself materially, that is not a sin. Uh, Sandy and I have a good, godly Christian financial planner we work with. Uh, he takes care of us as far as what we have and has, has done well in investing so we have more that we uh, when we need it uh, and i want to get the highest yield out of my money that i possibly can as long as as it's legal <laughs> not, not some other way of doing that uh, so the more he makes for me the better however there's no sin in that that's okay to do that the sin would be if i think that's how i'm preparing for my future if i'm putting all my eggs in that basket and thinking as long as i invest in things of the world that i'm taking care of that's where the sin comes we need to continue to realize and i know you know this but it's good to be reminded the future is not in our hands. It's not in the hands of your financial planner. And how much money you make on your investments does not secure your future in the least. Uh, it may take care of you down here, but it's not taking care of you as far as eternity goes. And so my future is secure as I surrender myself to God. And then whatever God gives to me materially, uh, he gives that to me so that I can serve him and use him, uh, use those things in his service. That's why he gives them to us. Anybody who puts confidence in those things here is headed for a rude awakening at the great white throne or at the judgment seat of Christ. So rich people are not sinners because they're rich. In this age, rich people are sinners if they trust their riches. And that's true no matter who. Uh, you can be the poorest person on earth. If you're trusting what you have, that's a sin. God wants you to trust him and him alone for whatever the future brings. Now, I want to read back uh, verse 7. I just talked to you a bit about the spiritual application. I want to shift back for a minute to the doctrinal application of these verses. Uh, look at verse 7. It says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he received the early and latter rain. Now, if you remember our studies in the book of Hebrews and also in the book of Matthew, uh, during the time of the tribulation, patience is the key. I'll read just a couple of verses out of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 11. Uh, and we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of the hope unto the end. That you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, we can spiritualize those verses, but if we take them as they stand, none of that applies to you and I. You don't have to have diligence and patience unto the end in order to receive the promises. The promises came to you the moment you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior. They're all yours right now. Nothing else you have to do. But in the tribulation, that's exactly what they're going to have to do. Have patience and diligence, do what God has called them to do, and do it unto the end. Otherwise, uh, they will not gain salvation uh, by, through their behavior. The tribulation is all about waiting for Jesus Christ to come back the second time. That's what those people who are choosing not to take the mark, that's what they're waiting for. And until he does, they've got to stay the course and not take the mark and survive however they can. And if they do that, when Jesus Christ comes back, the promises that he's made to them become theirs. So doctrinally, the patience that James is talking about here in verse 7 is patience in waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ a second time. 
when the tribulation is over and they've obtained their salvation. So you'll see there again in that verse, the coming of the Lord there is talking about the second coming and it's a tribulation reference. There's a couple of more tribulation references in that verse. Look at the phrase there, the, the former and the latter reigns there in the last part of that verse. I'm going to have you hold your hand there in James and go back to the book of Joel, the minor prophet Joel. Go back to that uh, book and find chapter 2, uh, Joel chapter 2. And this will show you, show us how that this, there's a connection here between these former and latter reigns and the time of the tribulation. Joel chapter 2, uh, look at verse 22. Joel 2.22 says this, Fear not, O land. Notice he's talking about property here. Be glad and rejoice, for the Lord will do great things. Be not afraid, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness do spring, for the tree beareth her fruit, the fig tree and the vine do yield their strength. Be glad then, ye children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he hath given you the former, uh, former rain moderately, and he will cause to come down for you the rain, the former rain, and the latter rain in the first month. That entire verse there is talking about the time after the tribulation when the, Jesus Christ sets up his millennial reign. And he's talking about the fact that when Jesus Christ comes, it's all going to be settled. Notice there, those reigns are referring to the land and to Zion, which are both Jewish references, and to the time of the second coming after the end of the tribulation when Jesus Christ sets up his kingdom. So again, what we see here in James chapter uh, 5, verse 7, uh, that former and latter reign is a direct reference to the tribulation. And then notice also he talks in uh, James chapter 5 and verse 7 about the precious fruit of the earth. I'm going to have you go the other direction now. Go to the book of Revelation. Go to Revelation chapter 14. And we'll see the tribulation reference here with this phrase he uses, uh, the precious fruit of the earth. Go to Revelation chapter 14 and look at verse 4. It says there, uh, These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goeth. These were redeemed from among men, being the first fruits unto God and to the Lamb. So there's those fruits again, those precious fruits. And that phrase in chapter 14 of the book of, uh, verse 4 of the book of Revelation is speaking of the witnesses, the 144,000 witnesses that occur during the time of the tribulation. So these again are tribulation witnesses and they are all Jews. And notice they are of men, they are of the earth in the sense they are not of the body of Christ. Rather, they are part of the Jewish remnant. So here you have in verse 7 of, of chapter 5 of the book of James, the husbandman, a reference to God the Father from John chapter 15, who's waiting for the fruit. He's waiting for his remnant to make it through the time of the tribulation so that he can go get them, waiting for them to complete what they have to do so that the second coming can occur and he can go get his people. So as God patiently waits for them to complete it, they are patiently waiting for him to come and rescue them out of that time. So doctrinally speaking again, that entire verse, verse 7, is a verse of reference to the tribulation. Look at verse 8. Be also patient, establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Now again, the coming of the Lord there is not the, the rapture of the church. He's not talking doctrinally to church people. He's speaking of the coming of the Lord, the second coming. Those folks in that tribulation have to have their hearts right. They have to be patient and they have to wait for Jesus Christ to come and rescue them when the tribulation time is over. Uh, folks, the real focal point of history at this point is the second coming of Jesus Christ. It is not the rapture of the church. 
The rapture of the church settles nothing as far as the world goes. It gets us out of here, but nothing else is handled during the, at the rapture. There is no making things right. There is no punishing the wrongdoers. That, none of that happens at the rapture. That all happens at the second coming. And that's what the world is waiting for now, and that's what the world will be facing when that terrible time begins. Everything in the future hinges upon Jesus Christ coming back the second time at the second coming. Every Bible prophecy hinges on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Every Bible promise comes to fulfillment because of the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's why every sign you find when Jesus Christ gives signs in the book of Matthew, those are all signs in reference to what? The second coming. Those are not rapture signs. Those are second coming signs. That's why when Jesus Christ comes back the second time, it's called the day of the Lord. That's when Jesus Christ comes and settles the score. God's designated time to settle all things and make them right, both for his people and for himself. So with all that being said, how should those people be preparing themselves for that time? How should they prepare themselves for, the, for, that, for the days they're going through until Jesus Christ comes? Well, look at verse 7 again. He says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. Be also patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord draweth nigh. Grudge not one against another, brethren, lest ye be condemned. Behold, the judge standeth before the door. Now, those, again, are specific instructions to those in the tribulation time awaiting the second coming. How are they supposed to deal with this awful time they're going through? There's the instruction for them. At the same time, however, spiritually speaking, those are good instructions for anybody going through a difficult time. No matter what they're going through, the instructions he gives there in verses 7, 8, and 9 are good for people of any age. Uh, we gain a lot of knowledge on how to handle uh, difficult times by reading those three verses. So these are instructions Jesus Christ gives, or James gives through the Holy Spirit of God. Uh, these are instructions or commands, really, of how to respond when difficult times come. So notice it again. Number one, verse 8, be also patient. Be patient during the time of your difficulty. Accept what comes without complaint. Accept what comes without blaming God for it or by betraying him in some way. Uh, this is dovetailing very well with our study in the book of Job. You'll look at how Job is, uh, Satan rather is using difficulties to get Job to turn his back on God and question God's faithfulness. And God uses those same difficulties, as we'll see, to build Job up and strengthen him and increase his dependency on him. God will do the same thing in your life. When a difficult time comes, what is God trying to do? Increase your dependency on him. Get you to look to him. Uh, get you to have a, a, an increased strength in him. Uh, get him to allow those uh, difficulties to build you up. Uh, and notice he says, approach you with patience. Drop down to verse 11. Look at verse 11. It says, Behold, we count them happy which endure. Ye have heard of the patience of Job, and have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. How did Job manage his trial? Well, in the end, he managed his trial because he stayed patient. Now, as, you read through, as we go through that book, you're not always going to see Job's patience. <laughs> you're going to see Job pretty frustrated at times. But overall, Job stayed patient and trusted God to get him through that difficult time. No matter what you go through, no matter what difficulty might come into your life, the only way to get through that thing and also glorify God in the process is be patient and wait for him to complete what he's doing. Just wait and be patient. That's number one. Here's number two. Look at verse eight again. 
Be also patient. Establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. Now, if I could put that in 21st century verbiage, what he is saying is, make sure your heart is in the right place. Make sure your heart is focused on the right things. Make sure you have grounded your heart in the right place. Because the natural tendency of the flesh is to look for relief when difficulty comes. You're looking for some way to have relief from this difficulty. Job sought help from his wife and from his friends. Uh, His wife told him to curse God and die, and his friends stared at him him for seven days and never said a word. (laughs) He found no uh, relief from them at all. They spend the next 29 chapters blaming Job for what happened to him. So he looked to his family, he looked to his friends, and found no relief whatsoever. How did Job find relief? When he connected back to the Creator. When he got back to God, then he found his relief. That's where he found his, his relief from the pain he was going through. Now, I'm not saying to you that friends and family can't help us when we're going through a difficulty. God has given us others to uh, be that benefit to us when we're struggling. That's why we have the body of Christ. That's what it's all about. But as we see with Job, uh, family and friends can fail you. They can't always do for you what you need. Uh, They can turn on you. They can give you bad advice. The only safe place to establish your heart in times of difficulty is in God himself. That's why he's given you his word. That's why he has given you the spirit of God. Uh, That's why you have those things. So that when difficulties come, you can focus yourself there and ground yourself there. I remember when Sandy and I went through a difficult time a few years ago, and God illuminated verses to me that I had read many, many times. And they burst forth to me when this difficulty occurred. In the time of need, those verses became real to me in a very special way. And it gave me the hope that I needed to stay the course and not turn from God in spite of the difficulty. No matter how small or how large the trial is, establish yourself in God and in his word. Make that your foundation. We're told in scripture to place our faith in one place, and that is in God and in his word, because that is the only stable place to go when those times come. And sooner or later, if you place your faith in anything else... It's going to let you down. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to be discouraged. So instruction number two, establish your heart. Set your heart in the right place. Make sure you're focused in the right place. And then number three, look at verse nine. Grudge not one against another, brethren. Grudge not one against another, brethren. Difficulties can be very, very divisive. Uh, They can tear us apart. That's one more way that we know that Satan has a hand in those difficulties. Because Satan is the master of division. He'll take every opportunity to to divide you against brothers and sisters. Because here's the deal, and, and you know this. Your tendency in your flesh when you're going through some difficulty is to find somebody to blame. <laughs> you want to find somebody to cause this thing. And so we begin to look for people to blame. Uh, so our tendency is to blame some other believer that we think caused our problem. Blame him or her for what's going on. And in the process, the body of Christ is divided. Because blame is not something that brings people together. Blame is something that pulls people apart. So if I can put James's words here in verse 9 in 21st century English, what he is saying is, don't blame other people for your problems. Don't look for a scapegoat to pin your troubles on. Realize that everything that comes into your life is under God's control, and God will use it for his purpose. It is wasted physical and emotional energy to find somebody to blame when you're going through something. That is just a complete waste of time. All it does is frustrate you and make you more bitter and divide the body of Christ. And in in all of that, as we blame other people, we're going to miss the purpose for the trial. Going to miss the purpose for the difficulty. 
And so it's going to be impossible to grudge other people uh, for the difficulty uh, because if we do that, we're going to divide ourselves and not find uh, what we need. You can't grudge somebody else and place your establishment in God himself. It is impossible to do both those things. You either establish yourself in him or you find somebody else to blame. You can't do both because if you uh, grudge somebody else, you're not seeking him. When you establish your heart in him, you're seeking only him in the time of that difficulty. And nobody else and nothing else will matter to you because you'll be focused so much on him and his purpose for you. And then drop down to verse 12. Here's the fourth command, the fourth instruction when we go through difficulty. But above all things, my brethren, swear not, neither by heaven, neither by the earth, neither by, uh, neither by any uh, other oath, but let your yea be yea and your nay nay, lest you fall into condemnation. Now, next we're going to look at that verse in much more detail. All I want you to see tonight is those first words, swear not, swear not. Many applications to that that I'm going to, we're going to talk more about next time. Here's the one I want to focus on tonight. Don't say needless, foolish, ignorant things in the midst of your difficulty. Don't say stupid things when you're going through a problem. <laughs> Don't say things that will bring reproach to the name of Jesus Christ or would imply to others that God's plan for you is not best or that God is not caring for you like he said he would. Here's the thing. If you're vocal about your faith in Christ, and hopefully you are, if you're vocal about your faith in Christ, and if you live the life of a believer before the saved and the lost alike, then people are going to begin to watch how you react to things. They're going to become in tune with how you respond when difficulties come. And if I profess to the world around me, whoever they are, that Jesus Christ meets all of my needs, and then a difficulty comes, and I become discouraged, and I become frustrated in what he's allowed, and if I express that discouragement or frustration in the words that I use in the middle of this thing, our trial, is rather our words, are not going to match the lies we presented. They're going to see us talking about being a believer, but our words are going to be saying something else. And it's going to become very confusing to those who are watching us. How does Jesus Christ really impact your life? I'm not getting this. Because you're complaining just like I would if I was going through a trial. People take note and watch those things. Now, I realize in the midst of a trial or midst of a difficulty, we're not watching how we're, or thinking about our impact on other people. However, people can be drawn to Jesus Christ if we handle difficulties biblically. Because, again, I really believe this. I think that world is looking for a difference. They're looking for something in you that's not like what they do and not like how they respond to things. And if you handle your difficulties biblically, you're going to stand out as somebody who's totally strange to these people, and they're going to want to know about more, know more about it. And in the same way, believers can be strengthened and encouraged if we show God's strength in our trial. Uh, believers can feed off that. I've mentioned this lady's name to you before, but in the church that I grew up with, in, we knew a lady by the name of Ruth Crick. Uh, Ruth Crick was my daughter's Sunday school teacher, but she was also a, a stalwart in our church for many, many years. Uh, Ruth Crick was a strong woman of faith. In her later years, she developed a number of physical difficulties. She also lost her husband during that time. But as a young person, I watched her, and her attitude never changed. In spite of all that she went through, she was just the same as always. You'd never know she was going through anything. Uh, she was as strong in her faith. She was as positive about the Lord when those difficulties came as she was in the good times when all was going well. And later on in her life, she wasn't able to come to church as much as she had, and she became a prayer warrior for the ministry there. She loved that church and loved the ministry of that church, and she prayed incessantly for that church, for people to come to know Jesus Christ through it and for the work to continue. 
And that lady's life had an impact on me because I still think about her and I still talk about her testimony. So obviously what she did had an impact on me as, as a young man. And I believe that she is not to be the exception. We shouldn't hold her up as, as some person that, that nobody else can be like. That should be all of us. That is how every believer should handle affliction when God allows it. Because everything in our life is done to benefit us and to benefit other people around us. That's why God does these things. If I swear instead of praise when God allows these things, part of the purpose for those trials is lost as a result. And I miss the chance to be used by God even when things are going in the opposite way of how I want them to go. Hold your hand there in James, if you would, and go to 2 Corinthians. These are some of my favorite verses in the book of 2 Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. If you want to know the purpose of your trials, of your difficulties, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 3 will give it to you. That verse, uh, 2 Corinthians 1 3 says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort who comforteth us in all our tribulation, watch it now, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the same comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer." Or whether we be comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. What's he saying? What he's saying is, when God brings something into my life, and I find God's comfort in that situation, as I allow him to comfort me and look to him for that, I am then able to take that comfort and project that onto somebody else who's going through difficulty as well. My comfort that I received from Jesus Christ, I can then translate to somebody else. And notice he says, uh, you're enduring these sufferings uh, for the consolation of others. It is for others' consolation that you go through these difficulties. The comfort God gives to me is to be communicated to others who are struggling. The consolation God provides to me uh, should be provided to others as you work our way through our trial. And that will never happen, folks, if we're cursing and swearing our way all the way through it. However, we might do that. If we're saying stupid things all the way through our trial, we will never be a comfort or consolation to anybody. And these commands must be followed in the tribulation if they're going to make it through. But they're commands for you and I spiritually so that God's trials are not wasted on us. I know it's easy for me to say this when you're not going through a trial. But folks, I want to say it to you, and I'm going to say it to you a lot during the book of Job. Difficulties are an opportunity. They are not something that God brings on you to to put you down unless he needs to do that. Uh, difficulties are an opportunity, and if we use them the way God allows us to, great help can be done to the body of Christ through that, if we're able to do it. we just got to be ready for it when it happens, so we can do that when the time comes. Uh, we are human. We don't do everything perfectly. Every believer going through a difficulty is going to lapse into despair and discouragement and self-pity from time to time. Please don't be hard on yourself when you do that. I'm sure Ruth Crick, in her private moments, had those times. However, we can't allow ourselves to stay there. You might have that for a moment. Job had that for a moment. But Job continually tried to pull himself out of it. Don't live there. Don't stay there. Uh, let it happen. Don't, uh, give yourself grace. And then move on from it. Uh, I use youth, uh, Ruth Crick as an example of how to walk through a trial. Because I watched her do it. And I watched her testimony. I was personally acquainted with her, and she had an impact on me as a result. Now, I want you to look at verse uh, 10, if you would, 
of James chapter 5. Because James is going to give us, rather God is going to give us his examples of how to go through trial. Look at what he says in verse 10. Take my brethren the prophets who have spoken in the name of the Lord for an example of suffering affliction and of patience. What's he saying? He says here are God's models of how to operate when difficulties come. If you want to know how to manage afflictions when they come, look to the prophets. Look to the prophets. There is probably nobody in God's service who suffered greater affliction than did the prophets of God. Uh, Jeremiah was placed into a dungeon up to his armpits in mud and human feces. (laughs) Ezekiel had to eat cakes made of cow's dung. Uh, Isaiah had to preach naked for almost three years. (laughs) There was an unnamed prophet who who had to ask another prophet to attack him and wound him with a sword to make a point to King Ahab. I could go on and on with how God used these prophets over the time in the Old Testament. Uh, James is making clear to let us know something. Look at the verse again. Take my brethren, the prophets, who have spoken in the name of the Lord. What's he saying? These guys were in God's will. They were doing exactly what God called them to do, and they suffered great affliction even as they did that. Notice they are not out of fellowship. Rather, they are doing God's work, and they suffered great affliction in spite of that. And notice they didn't give up. They didn't back down. They didn't curse God. They were human. They didn't always have the best attitude. Uh, You can look at Jeremiah or Elijah as two examples of that. But they didn't quit, and they didn't bring reproach upon the name of the Lord in the process. And notice he says to you there again, you are to handle these afflictions specifically with patience. There it is again. He won't let up on that. He wants us to handle that thing with patience. James is holding these people up to us as somebody to model after. Again, look at verse 11. You've heard of the patience of Job. It keeps coming up over and over again. Now, that may be a difficulty. We may struggle with that. In the midst of the trial or the difficulty, it may seem hopeless, and there may be no apparent end in sight. But I want you to see what James says. In spite of that, keep, keep, keep reading. Behold, Verse 11, Behold, we count them happy which endure. You've heard of the patience of Job. And I've seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy, and of tender mercy. Uh, but look at verse, the first part of verse 11. We count them happy which endure. Happiness is typically not found in a trial. When you see somebody going through a difficult time, happiness is probably not the way that you would characterize them. Uh, I get not blaming other people. I get handling it with patience. I get not speaking foolishly in the midst of a trial. But I feel like telling us to be happy in that thing is just going a little too far. <laughs> that seems almost undoable to me. Uh, it seems like we're speaking of human, superhuman effort to do that. And yet he says there, those prophets and Job found happiness connected with their affliction. Now notice how he says this. Look at the verse again. We count them happy which endure. We count them happy which endure. Happiness is not found during the trial necessarily. Happiness is found at the end of the trial. Happiness comes when you endure the trial. And I think what is implied here is the endurance is handling this trial appropriately as we follow the commands that we looked at earlier. So if we go through the trial the way God would have us to, at the end of that thing, there's happiness. That's what the verse says. Now, in the tribulation, obviously that's the case because Jesus Christ comes back and there's true happiness at that time. But I want you to see what he says here again. That happiness comes, look at verse 11, 
Behold, we count them happy which endure. You've heard of the patience of Job, and I've seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Again, the happiness came as they saw the end of the Lord. What's that mean? Well, these folks went through a trial. They endured that trial with patience. They saw God work in that trial. And at the end of that trial, they saw God in ways they never knew him before. They found happiness as they watched God work in that trial, as they learned more about him in that trial, as they drew closer to him in that trial, as they experienced all the blessings that came from him as a result of that trial. This is not the way we think. That's why James is so riveted on this, and that's why we're going through it both in James and in the book of Job. We need to change our thinking about this. Because if Jesus Christ doesn't come back, we've got some trials to go through before this thing all wraps up. And so we need to know how to do that. Uh, you see, when you look at the people of the world, they go through difficulty and there's no purpose to them. They just go through the stuff. They just have to endure it. I talked to a lady this week. We were talking about losing a loved one. And we were talking about how in the world does somebody do that if they don't know the Lord? How do you survive that horrible, that horrible affliction if you don't know Jesus Christ? Well, that's how unbelievers do it. They go through that stuff with no hope, with no support from God whatsoever because they don't know him. Now, some unbelievers may proclaim some sort of benefit of the trial, but if they don't know the Lord, whatever benefit they gain from that is minimal and superficial. Uh, there's no permanent or deep, deep gain to it. The only gain in a trial is to know God and know him better with every experience you go through. And if that's not achieved, whether you're saved or lost, that experience was a waste. If you go through something and don't know God better at the end of it, you might as well not even gone through it. Because the whole purpose of it is to get you to know him better. Those who know Jesus Christ as Savior who, and go through a trial, gain something from that trial as a result. What do you gain? Well, look at the verse again. Notice the last part of verse 11. Uh, you have seen the end of the Lord, that the Lord, number one, is very pitiful. The first thing you learn about God as you go through that trial and get to the end of it is you get to experience the pity of God. Now, I know that word pity, as far as our connotation goes, uh, carries with us some odd ideas. Here's true pity as far as what Scripture says. Pity carries consolation and empathy, consoling and empathy. And what that means is that person who has, shows pity on somebody else does the best they can to put themselves in the same place where that person is and understand their trial as best they can. Now, you'll never do that perfectly because you can't put yourself in somebody else's place. But the idea of empathy and pity is to try to see that thing through their eyes, see how they're experiencing that thing, and then help them, uh, console them with that experience, with that understanding. Now, so God in his pity shows, uh, God rather in, his, in our struggle shows us pity. Now, I'm going to make a statement to you that's going to sound uh, heretical, but I'm going to try and explain it so that you realize it's not. <laughs> uh, if God had remained in heaven, Understand how I'm saying this. If God had made, remained in heaven, he never could have showed pity to us. If God had remained where he was in heaven, he never could have showed you pity. Because the only one who can truly understand what we're going through is somebody who's been something, through something like it themselves. They've got to have some sort of similar experience to be able to understand what we're going through. So you see, if God had stayed in heaven, he couldn't have done that for us. The reason support groups are so beneficial to those who are going through difficulties is because you have people in that group who are going through a, a very, the exact thing or a similar thing, and they can relate to the trial of that person. What if God has stayed in heaven? 
he never could show us pity because if he stayed in heaven, he never would have gone through anything we're going through. (laughs) He'd have been up there just enjoying heaven and not gone through anything that we're going through. He couldn't comfort us because he would have no personal idea of what we're experiencing. And so with that thought in mind, go back a couple of pages to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, some of the greatest verses in Scripture in regard to your difficulties and the trials you go through. Hebrews chapter 4, look at verse 15. Hebrews 4.15, for we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He can feel what we're going through. Why? But was it all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin? Let us therefore come boldly under the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus Christ, as God in the flesh, came to this earth. And when he did that, he accomplished a couple of things. First of all, he couldn't have been our Savior had he not come to earth and lived a perfect life. But in addition, had Jesus Christ not come to earth and lived the life that he lived, God would have no personal connection to anything we go through. He couldn't have felt it. He would have no way of knowing because he didn't go through it himself. He would have not gone through the challenges that we go through. So what God did was he came in the person of Jesus Christ. And he went through all of it. Whatever you've been through, he went through. Whatever you're feeling, he's felt it. He went through all of it just like you did. He's got a a personal understanding of everything that you've gone through. And so as a result, when I go through a difficulty, he knows everything that I experience, everything that I feel, he knows it. He knows it personally. He knows it by experience. And so he can show me true compassion. He can show, show, show me true empathy. He can show me true pity. Because no matter what I go through, God knows exactly what it's like because he's been through it as well. I can't comprehend that. I can't explain that to you. All I know is that's what the word of God says. (laughs) That's what he did. He can show us compassion that we need since he knows exactly what we need as we're going through it. So you can have a human support group. Those are great. They have great value in those. And if you couple that with the heavenly support group that comes from God himself, we can actually, according to this verse, be happy at the end of the trial. You can actually find happiness there at the end of your suffering because you've learned to know God's comfort in a way you never would have known it had you not experienced it for yourself through that difficulty. Look at the verse again. Go back to James chapter 5. Look at verse 11 again. The Lord is very pitiful and of tender mercy. Tender mercy. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm going through some difficulty, I've never found any benefit whatsoever from some well-meaning person saying to me, well, you know, it could be worse. (laughs) I've never found any help in that whatsoever. In the first place, obviously, it could be worse. Anything can be worse. So that doesn't even help me at all. Uh, Secondly, uh, no one, I should say this, no one but Jesus Christ has ever experienced the full extent of the difficulty. So no matter what you're going through, it can always be worse. I get that. So that's almost so obvious as to be offensive. (laughs) But here's the second thing. I find no value in that statement because that in no way reduces the pain I'm feeling with what I'm going through. Uh, I realize it could be worse, but I'm in pain right now with what I'm dealing with. I get a paper cut. And somebody says, well, you know, it could be worse. You could have cut your finger off. Well, (laughs) that's true. But the paper cut still hurts. I mean, I, I still have pain from that. And knowing I could have lost a finger, I suppose there'd be more pain to that. But it still hurts regardless. <laughs> so it could be hurts doesn't provide me any help when somebody says that to me. However, however, when God says that, it's the case. Because, you see, with every event you go through, 
uh, as your child, that event has God's mercy attached to it. So when you say it could be worse, absolutely, because without God's mercy, it'd be a thousand times worse. No matter what I go through, please hear me tonight, no matter what I go through, no matter what you go through, his mercy is attached to it, and that reduces the pain, and that reduces the effects of that experience. Was God's mercy not there? It'd be so much worse. So much worse. God's mercy makes sure that I don't experience everything that I might have to experience if he weren't there controlling what I go through. And that's why, again, when an unbeliever goes through some difficulty, folks, they do not know God's mercy whatsoever. They go through that thing all by themselves, and they experience all of it because God's mercy is not there. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine that. I cannot imagine losing a loved one and not having God's mercy to help me during that time. I can't fathom that. Uh, And that's what the lost folks have to do. But you see, with God, that mercy is there, and that mercy is what provides the path for us to get through that difficulty. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 10.13 about the way of escape. God's mercy provides for you the way of escape. It is only by God's mercy that that happens. God does not have to do that for you. I mean, you didn't earn that privilege. God does that for you because of his mercy. God gives you a way out because of his mercy. God reduces the pain of your affliction because of his mercy. God reduces the sorrow that you might feel because of his mercy. And that's the only reason, because God chose to be merciful to us. Uh, And so when God's mercy comes along, it reduces the pain of the affliction. Now, you may have friends that want to help you through your struggle. And they may try to say things to you to help you manage that thing. Those things they do are only relevant if God is speaking through them. Those things only help if God is using them as an instrument of his mercy. Otherwise, no person on earth can help you with your difficulty. They can't do it. They're not equipped. or We're not equipped to do it for each other. However, as I go through it, I experience God's mercy. God works through me to provide that mercy to others. And then through God's mercy being displayed through me, I can help somebody else who's going through a difficulty. God cares about you so much. God cares about me so much. He is so concerned about you. You can't even imagine how concerned he is about you. So much so that when a difficulty comes into your life, God's mercy kicks in and you have the intensity of that struggle managed by the all-powerful God. Amen, amen, and amen. Maybe you need to wake up. <laughs> and you're going to look at the end of that struggle as you've been through it and you're going to look down that path you, you went down and you're going to look at the end of that path and you know what you're going to see down there? The mercy of God. If you handle it right, as he's told you to, when you get done with that thing, you're going to look down there and say, you know what? God was there all the way through this thing. I see his mercy from start to finish. You may not see it at the time. I'm sure Job didn't see it at the time. At the end of that thing, you're going to say, you know what? We've got a merciful God. He took me through that thing, and look at me. I'm still standing as a result. And something else, God's mercy allows us to grow to know him better. God's mercy allows us to draw closer to him than we would ever not, not ever have dreamed of before the trial. But I want to say it one more time because it's so important to say this only happens if we manage the trial and the difficulty according to how God commands us to. Those four things that I mentioned to you a few minutes ago, we've got to abide by those things. If I choose not to do those things, I may experience a little of God's mercy. I may know him a little better after the struggle, but the entire experience will overall be painful and difficult and wasted. (laughs) Prepare yourself now. Get yourself ready now. 
I know we have a difficult time comprehending this, folks. Difficulties are opportunities. Difficulties are blessings from God or can be. The book of Job is going to teach us that. And James is trying to teach us that as well. But the wise believer is that one who looks into God's word and uses that book as a map as they go through trial and uses that book as a preparation for the trial and uses that book to identify what God wanted us to see after the trial. And in all ways, God uses those things to grow us up in Jesus Christ. I know it's not easy for us to do. Thank God for trials. God does his great work through the trials as he shows us his mercy and his grace through them. All right, let's stand if you would.